Andrea will be reading if you want to grab your physical Bibles or your phones. She'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 10. I'll let you know verses. You can grab this one, Andrea. Okay, let's try it again. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 18. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hello? Look at y'all. Y'all look so good. Y'all want to see something revolutionary real quick? Watch it. Your boy is out. I'm free, y'all. I feel like I'm a slave that's been set free from that pie. And look at me. I'm like walking and talking at the exact same time. I want to bust out on the moonwalk, but I'm not going to do that. That'll be too entertaining. What's going on, family? It is so good to be with you. I am Jalen Baker, the newly minted pastoral resident, and I am so happy to be here, as always, to be preaching the Word of God with you. Before we dive into our text this morning, let's open up with a word of prayer, and let's see what the Lord has for us. God, we thank you so much for your Word, for your presence, for your Spirit, and for your Son. God, this morning as we dive into our teaching, I pray that you can inspire us, convict us, motivate us, and encourage us to continue on this journey and this walk with you as we pursue you diligently 
so that we can become all that you have created us to be. Let your spirit cover all of us here so that we can hear your word clearly, be changed and transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, just for a few minutes of your time, I want to tag this text, Jesus, the one and only. I'm, gonna move, I'm just going to move this thing way back out. We're just going to get rid of it. Jesus, the one and only. When I was a kid, like most children, I loved playing with toys. My favorite toy was probably Buzz Lightyear. Any Toy Story fans up in the house? Got any Toy Story fans? I always say that Toy Story 3 will make a grown man cry every single day of the week. Love Toy Story 3. Not speaking from my own experience, of course. I just tend to get emotional when I watch Toy Story 3. But Buzz Lightyear was my favorite toy growing up. But the problem with me as well was I was a very clumsy kid. I would always drop the toys, figure out how to break them in half. And it got to a certain point to where my mom just bought some duct tape and said, you know what, I ain't buying you no more new toys. Tape them together and have at it. And that's what I did. And for a while it worked, but the problem with the tape church was it was only temporary. It would always find a way to come off. I had to retape it over and over again. And one day I was over at my grandmother's house, and she said, Jalen, why are all your toys taped up like this? Like, Granny, you know, I'm always breaking these joints. I ain't, I just, I'm, I, the tape keeps them together just for a little while, and I can continue to play with them. And so you know what you need, Jalen? I got the solution for you. Go in the kitchen, look in the drawer, and I want you to bring me that small tube with a blue cap on it. It's called super glue. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this tape off, I'm going to apply this super glue, and I want you to watch how your toys are going to come together and get this. You only got to apply it one good time. And after that one time, you're good. You can play with them for the rest of time. I did that, and it revolutionized me breaking toys all the time and then being able to put it back together. The super glue worked. The duct tape was temporary, and the super glue was more permanent. This morning, the author of Hebrews has come to relay the message to us that Jesus, our chief mediator, serves as the supernatural superglue that brings together the broken relationship of God and humanity. See, the, the old covenant system was good, right? It worked, but it did not do the trick. It was not permanent enough. So therefore, since it was temporary and it did not take away sins, God said, I need a more permanent solution. And that permanent solution was Jesus. Jesus was the one who came and he was the only one, as the author of Hebrews says over and over again, who could sacrifice his body one good time. And after that one time, it took our sins away. It freed us from our sins. Jesus was the only one who could pay a debt that we could not pay. Jesus was the only one who could be the substitute for us on that cross so that we would not die to our sins but live life through the Spirit. Jesus was the one who gave us access to true worship, which is being able to enter into the presence of God to know Him intimately and Genuinely, one good time, supernatural superglue holds us together in Christ so that we can be in right relationship. Now, the first few verses of our text, the author of Hebrews 
does something very interesting, right? We're in verse 7, 8, and 9. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40, 6 through 8. He starts off by saying that Jesus comes into the world to set things right. And then he does the interesting thing of giving Jesus the words of David. He says that Jesus said, insert quote, David's words. And he basically is saying here that Jesus is the author of David's words in Psalms. And I love this because it reminds us that Jesus did not just bust on the scene when, when, he, when Mary gave birth to him in a manger, right? Jesus was present throughout all of time, including in the Old Testament. The Gospel of John puts this very eloquently. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. He was with God, he being Jesus, in the beginning. In him all things were made, and nothing can be made without him. So that means Jesus was with God throughout all of the activity in the Old Testament. So when we hear David say these words in Psalm 40, it is Jesus authoring these words, breathing these words into David, because Jesus is the one, the only one, quite frankly, that could fulfill these words and be the one sacrifice that would set us right again. It wasn't going to be David. It could only be Jesus. So, this is this, so when, when we hear David talking in Psalms, we hear Jesus talking. And I love that. And in verse 7, as I was reading this this week, church, God really, like, wrestled with me this, 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 this week as I was reading, reading that text. Because it is always both challenging and inspiring to see Jesus communicate with his Father. Check out what Jesus does here. He says, sacrifices and burnt offerings you no longer desire. But you did prepare for me this one body. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. NIV says, my God. I've come to do your will, my God. And I love the posture of Jesus here. Right? And that's what God was really sort of saying, Jalen, what would it look like if my people took on the posture of my son? Because check out what he does. When we are faced with an assignment by God to do God's will, to do God's work, and to do the thing that God has called us to, we have to ask ourselves honestly, do we take on this posture? Of Jesus, because Jesus here is given a divine assignment of cosmic proportions, right? God says to his son, son, sacrifices I no longer desire. Burnt offerings I no longer desire. Killing animals I no longer desire. And because I don't desire them, I'm going to make you the sacrifice. And because I no longer require or desire the killing of animals, I'm going to have you killed. And Jesus stares this mighty task in the face and says, Lord, I have come to do your will, my God. Imagine, church, how our marriages and our friendships and our relationships can be utterly changed if we took on this posture. 
When God calls us to forgive those who may have harmed us, to love those who we don't necessarily get along with, when God calls us to sacrifice ourselves, our time, our money, our resources for the, to those who desperately need it, imagine how transformed our families, our lives, and our communities would be if we took on the posture of Jesus. Behold, I have come to do your will, oh God, my God, not my will, but your will. Incredible posture of Jesus. A friend of mine I went to seminary where we just graduated together, moved to Texas to take on an associate pastor role. I was watching in the sermon he, he preached last week, and he said some good stuff. And I texted him, I said, hey, man, I'm going to steal about two things in your sermon this week. I just want to put you on notice that when you, if you hear me say it, you know, I gave you credit this time. If I say it again, if I say it again no promise. I'm just going to pretend like it was mine. I'm just casually say that it was mine. One of the things about God's will, right, and how we wrestle with it, I think sometimes we can look and stare into God's work and will for our lives, and we can say things like, do I have the ability to do that? Can I actually do that? It was like things like, do I want to do that? Quite frankly, like, I don't know if I really want to do that. And then it's like, am I ready to do this? Am I mature enough? Am I bold enough? Am I qualified enough to do this? And my friend in his brilliance said that Jesus is not looking for a specific ability. All Jesus wants is an open door. All he wants is for us to open the door of our hearts, open the door of our minds, to let his spirit come in and indwell us, to power us to do the things that God has called us to do. Just like Jesus, all God wants is our submission. All he wants is a yes, and from that point, that's when God will take over. Then we go from thinking that we can't do it to now believing that we can do it. Transformation. We go from thinking that we're not qualified to do it to believing that we are qualified because we got God in us. Transformation. Our mentality changes. Our perspective changes. We don't walk like we used to. We don't talk like we used to. We don't think like we used to because God has fundamentally changed us from the inside out. And all it takes it's us having that posture of saying, God, I have come to do your will. Not my will, but your will, my God. Imagine the transformation that would take place in our lives, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our churches, in our schools, in our jobs, if we just take on the posture of Jesus. And Jesus died. He sacrificed so that we can position ourselves to assume this posture, right? And that's something that we have to give God glory for. Transition into verse 8 through 10. Verse 8 through 10 I really loved because this is one of the first times in a while where the writer quotes some scripture and he actually interprets it for us. 
that's actually really cool. I was like, we ain't got to do that much work. We just got to read what he said and just say, oh, bet. That's what that means. Thank you so much. So verse 8, he literally quotes what he just said, and he begins to interpret it in verse 9. So let me make sure I get this joint right. So verse 9, he quotes, behold, I have come to do your will, right? Jesus says that in the, in the preceding verses. And at the, the second half of verse 9, he begins to interpret. Hey, bro, can you pass me my towel, fam? I'm starting to sweat already. Have mercy on us all. Let's look at it, though. Behold, I have come to do your will. So the question becomes, what is God's will? Watch, watch this. He, he answers it right there. He does it away with the first in order to establish the second. So God's will is that Jesus would die a sacrificial death to inaugurate the new covenant. That's it. He just, he just told you what it meant. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? And then he keeps going. Verse 10. And by that will, the inauguration of the new covenant, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So one of the benefits and blessings of the new covenant is that we become sanctified. Now, sanctified translated in the Greek means to be set apart. Same definition as holy, right? But the reason why sanctified is so important is because of sanctification, right? Because if sanctified means to be set apart, sanctification is a setting apart process. One writer puts it this way. He says, that when something is sanctified, it is set apart for the intended design by its creator, right? It is set apart to do the thing that it was created to do. So, for example, a pen is sanctified when it's used to write. Glasses are sanctified when it improves sight. And these glasses have been sanctified because I can see all of your lovely faces. These glasses are very sanctified. And, for, and theologically, for us as Christians, we are sanctified when we, have been, when we have been set apart to be used by God and for God, and, and, and our lives are being lived according to God's purpose. So we have been set apart when our lives begin to embody the Word of God, when our lives begin to embody the life of Jesus. We are becoming like Jesus, all right? So sanctification is not about performance. It's not about works. It's about becoming somebody. And that somebody is Jesus. Not about works, not about performance. It's about becoming. It's about being transformed into something, going from death to life, from sinner to redeemed, lost to found. That's sanctification that ongoing process, right, being set apart. And this is important because I think sometimes we as Christians can get caught up in acting like a Christian. We can get caught up in saying, am I being a good Christian? When that's not what, that's not what God is after, right? God is not after the good Christian. Because quite frankly, no such thing exists. If good Christians existed, then the old system would have worked, right? But because the old system didn't work and they had to keep sacrificing over and over again, we have to be 
we have to go into a new system. And under this new system, good Christian means Jesus. He's the only one. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see good Christian, bad Christian. He just sees Jesus, right? And now we have the opportunity under the new covenant to become like Jesus, right? To be formed and transformed into a Christ-like individual, right? That's what it's about. Not about good Christian, bad Christian, just about Jesus. He continues to go down the line here. Verse 11, what he does here, church, is very interesting to me. He's, he, he kind of puts up two images, right? He puts up an image of the old covenant, and then he puts up an image of the new covenant. So let's start with the old covenant. So under the old covenant, there are three things that stand out. The priest would have to stand up daily to render the service. That's number one. Number two, sacrifices would, be have to, would have to be made repeatedly under the old covenant. And number three, these sacrifices could not take sins away. And then he juxtaposes that to Jesus' sacrifice, right? Verse 12. So when Christ makes his sacrifice, it goes into effect for all time, right? So it only takes one good time that Christ has to make this sacrifice and we good, right? And it only takes a single sacrifice, right? So one sacrifice for all of time. No repetition, it only takes one. And then the last thing, Christ's sacrifice culminates into him sitting at the right hand of God. Now, this is very important because this is, this is a contrast, right? So he says, priests stand and Christ sits. Why is this very important? So because Christ now sits at the right hand of God, that, that, that means there's a finality to his sacrifice. He now can sit at the right hand of God because it is finished. Very similar to how God does it in the, in the Old Testament, right? When God gets done creating, what does he do? He rests on the seventh day. Y'all see that? Y'all see, see how that connects? That's crazy, right? So the same way God could rest after he finished creation, Jesus now sits after he sacrifices for all of creation, right? Love that. And then the priest stands, right? And because they stand, that means they are constantly sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. It ain't working. The system's not working. So therefore, but under this new system, because Christ sits, his sacrifice is sufficient for all time, right? Very, very important. And then in verse 13, he emphasizes this point yet again, right? He says, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Our homie in Hebrews loves Psalms, right? He quotes Psalms all the time. And he quotes Psalms again here, right? Because again, Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. So this sort of hints at that at the end time, when Christ comes back in his second appearance, his enemies, those who did not accept him, those who chose not to follow him, will be made his footstool. They will fall under subjugation under him as he comes back for his second time. And the author of Hebrews is saying that, the sac Christ's sacrifice is going to be good from the time he sacrificed all the way to the time he comes back, 
right? Which again, emphasizes that it only took one sacrifice for all of time here on earth, right? Because it's going to last all the way until his enemies will be made his footstool at the second coming when folks will be under his subjugation. And then in verse 14, he moves to talking about what does the sacrifice, and really for the rest of our text this morning, he moves to talk about what does this sacrifice mean for you and I. We understand that he made the sacrifice. We understand that it lasts for all time. Now, what does this mean for you and me? By a single offering, what does Christ do? He has perfected for all time, right? And in this context, perfected means that we have been cleansed from sin, right? It doesn't mean that God, that Christ has made us perfect because we know that the only one who is perfect is Christ. But to be perfected by Jesus and his sacrifice means that we have been cleansed from our sins, right? And because we have been cleansed from our sins, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, right? So because we've been cleansed from our sins, we now have access to be in relationship with God. And the way we enter into that relationship is through being sanctified. And I want you to notice that word, right? Because he says, those who are being sanctified. He could have said, who are sanctified. That, that probably would have worked. But he emphasizes being sanctified, right? And this, this goes to show that sanctification is an ongoing process, right? I love how Paul says it in Philippians, right? He says that I press toward the mark of the upward call in Christ Jesus, right? That call that God has on my life, I press, I press, I mature, I mature, I grow into that call until the last days when Christ comes back, and that's when I will be truly perfected and made like Jesus. But until that time, I have to grow into the child that God has called me to be. Charlie Bates said last week that God gives us a crown when we were first saved. He said that the Christian life is us growing into that crown so that it's, so that it's fitted perfectly one day. And that day won't come until we're in paradise, right? And the hope in that is there is no standard that we have to meet in order to be loved by God because the standard died for us so that we can be loved by God. There is no measuring stick that we have to meet because the measuring stick died for us sacrifice his life so that we could be redeemed, set free, and live a life that is with God. And, and, and really that live a life where we can experience what it really means to be alive, right? What it really means to be a human being by becoming like Jesus. So we have been perfected, cleansed of our sins, so that we are being sanctified so that we can start that ongoing process of sanctification. And in verse, six, in verse 15, he does another interesting thing. He says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us 
For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. So again, the author of Hebrews is attributing words said in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit, right? And I love how he sort of says that the presence of the Trinity was alive and well in the Old Testament, right? That Jesus and the Holy Spirit didn't just bust on the scene in the New Testament. They were there with God in the beginning, right? So these words are taken from Jeremiah chapter 31. And the reason why the author of Hebrews says that the Holy Spirit offers these words, breathes them into Jeremiah, is because when we look at these words Jeremiah utters, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So when we open the door of our hearts and minds, the Holy Spirit comes in and writes the laws and writes the words of God on our hearts and on our minds. And now we can embody what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We now can become that follower of Christ, that child of God, that God has called us to be. The Holy Spirit is doing that work, that sanctification work that was uttered first in the Old Testament and has now been inaugurated in the New Testament. So the dots connect between the old and the new. And I love how the author of Hebrews connects those dots for us. And then in 17, he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And this is really good news because because of the sacrifice of Christ, when God looks at you and I, he does not see sin. He does not see corruption. He does not see brokenness. Again, he sees Jesus. He sees the one who died to those things so that we can be free, right? And now that we have been set free from sin, we have been set free to become like Jesus, right? We've been set free from sin in order to become like Jesus. So when God looks at you and I, even when we make mistakes, even when we have our flaws, God does not see the flaws and the mistakes that we might see. God sees someone who has been redeemed and someone who can grow and mature into the child that he has called you and I to be. That's what God sees. And I'm so glad that God sees us that way. And in verse 18, as it comes to a close, the author of Hebrews just puts an emphasis and finality on his statement where he says, where there is forgiveness of these sins, right, there is no longer any offering for sin. Again, emphasizing that because of the one sacrificial act of Christ, there's no need of sacrifices. There's no need of, the, of, of those old covenantal rituals and practices because of what Christ has done. And I want to end this morning by talking about that first part of verse 18, where God says, where there is forgiveness of sins. You know, churches, I was thinking about this this week. 
God was laying on my heart to say that the forgiveness of God and how we have been forgiven by God has to mean something in our daily lives, right? So because we have been forgiven by God, what does that look like in our daily lives? And this gets back to verse 7, right? Taking on that posture of Jesus. Forgiveness should inspire us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love even our enemies, right? Forgiveness should inspire us to sacrifice in ways that will cost us something, like forgiving someone who has, who has maybe done us wrong, but because we have been forgiven, God's not going to forgive through us, right? Being a forgiven child of God has to mean something, because if it does not mean something, church, then the world will not see the work of God in our lives. If it does not translate over into how we are living daily, then what does the world see that's different than they are? They see nothing. They see absolutely nothing. So that's why I want to challenge you and I that when we wake up in the morning and as we go, as we go throughout our day, let us say the words, God, I want to do your will not my will. God, I want to take on the posture of Jesus. As much as it might be cool to fit in at school or at work or even at home, we're not called to fit in. We're called to be like Jesus. Because being like Jesus changes hearts. It changes minds. It transforms the environments that we have been called into. See, the reality for us, church, is that because we have been saved, God's going to send us out to places that are in need of a Savior. And that Savior lives in you. That Savior lives in you and me, and so, which is why God said, I'm going to save and sanctify and forgive through you so that people can see my work in you. Our forgiveness has to mean something. We can't just be going through our lives, going through the motion, saying, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm saved. But what does it mean for you every day, for me every day? Are we taking the posture of Jesus when God gives us a lofty assignment, just like he gave Jesus? What is our response? My prayer is that Jesus' words, behold, I have come to do your will. My prayer is that that can be etched on our hearts and etched in our minds so that when we come up, a, come up against a difficult situation, that is what we say. Let our instinct be that of Jesus. Lord, your will, not my will. Let our habits be that of Jesus. Lord, your will, not my will. Let our behavior be that of Jesus. Lord, your will, not my will. And I want you to see not only how you might change somebody else, but see how your life will change. Right? 
See how purposeful your life will be. See how much joy your life will have. See how much peace your life will have just by being obedient to God. And obedience, again, is not about performance. It's about what? Becoming. Becoming somebody. And that somebody is Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day and for this time. Thank you for this word, God. We appreciate everything that you have done for us. We appreciate the marvelous sacrifice that you only had to do one good time. And after that one good time, we have now been made in your image. We have now been made your children because of what Jesus did for us. So, God, we thank you so much for all that you've done, for all that you will continue to do. And we thank you in advance for how you will inspire us to be more like you on a daily basis, God so that we can be the children you called us to be in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.